Praise God. Hey, how you doing? Yes. My name is Ben. I'm a pastor here, uh, and um, I really am super glad you're here. I almost died today. Uh, I'm going to tell you the story. So uh, in my house, we have these things. Don't judge me um, or my family on this, but we've got these like a hybrid moth fly gnat things that have been appearing in my house. Uh, and my wife's amazing, and she runs an amazing home. It's just our home's really old, and it's got holes, and we're always finding new breeds of spiders and things like that. Um, and so uh, you guys are welcome to come over anytime. Uh, but we've got these, like, gnat fly things that have been around some, and they're, they're really easy to kill, so that's not a big deal. They'll just land there until you smack them. But, like, for the last, like, week or so, it's been like, man, where are these suckers coming from? And there's, they'll be, like, around the house, just, like, one or two. And today I found the source, guys. This morning, uh, I opened up the pantry, right, to get some miniature frosted uh, mini-wheats, and uh, I realized there's an extra large amount of these in this pantry area, right? And so I was like, I need to investigate. Sure enough, there was a nest of these guys. This hybrid moth fly was breeding in our pantry, uh, specifically in the paper towel area. We keep paper towels on the floor of the pantry, and they were eating the paper towels and throwing parties and stuff like that. And so I grabbed some, some raid, it's, uh, it's like home and garden raid, flies and ants and that kind of like poison, right? And I had some under the sink, so I grabbed some, and then because I'm brilliant, I thought, man, I'm going to get them. I found the source, and so I stepped into the pantry. It's a pretty big, I mean, it's not, it's maybe, it's maybe the length of this carpet, if you can see it. So like from there to the music stand, but it's underneath the steps of our house, and so it kind of goes down, so I can't really get in that end, and then there's all this food right here. And so I came in, and I closed the door behind me, <laughs> right, because I'm brilliant, sealing myself in with the hybrid moth gnats. And there I was with my poison, and they were trapped, right, because I, I was thoughtful enough to close the door behind me, and then I just started hosing them. I just started spraying them, and I moved the paper towels, and there's like thousands of them, and they were all, it reminded me, you know that scene in Batman, like every Batman movie, where he falls into the well, and all the bats circle around him, and he's like surrounded by bats, and he becomes a superhero? I thought of that moment. I thought, this is my moment. Like, if I come into being a superhero, I will be a hybrid moth gnat thing. That would be, and I could reference my origin stories back to this moment in my pantry. And so I'm spraying them and hosing them down, and they're on the wall, and I'm spraying them, and I'm looking at their little tiny lungs cough and die and fall to the ground. They're up here, and then I turn around, and they're all over the back of the door, and so I'm spraying them there. And I just, uh, also, my raid was like floral scented. It really was. It's like floral scented, so it didn't smell like the poison it was. It smelled like flowers. Uh, so I just kept spraying and kept spraying. I really thought it was brilliant. Um, because I just thought, man, they're all in here. We've just created this death chamber in the pantry for them all. Um, and I thought, I got this. I'm top five intelligent in this. I mean, I, this really, I'm moving up. And then I realized, I'm going to die. <laughs> That's when I realized, this is, this is it. This is the end. I am trapped in this pantry now with all of, with a, basically I unloaded a can of Raid that they are now dying because it's poisonous. And I'm thinking, I am going to die soon. Like, this is going to be me. Uh, I'm breathing in all this poison. I'm trapped in it. So I'm thinking, oh, man. And so I'm like, my first thought was I need to call Josh and tell him he's going to preach tonight because it's like, that was priority one. Like, Josh, you got to fill in. It's Laodicea tonight, Revelation chapter three. So I thought of him. And then I thought, then I'll text my wife and tell her, like, no regrets. I'll text her. <laughs> and then I was like, 
And then I was like, okay, I need to text Abby, who's my sister-in-law, and tell her, like, I need you to help with the kids when I'm gone more. Like, Danielle's going to need your help. And then I thought, I'm going to need to text, like, a good, godly bachelor guy to marry my wife when I'm gone, right, to take care of her. Because if I die, I want some, like, I want a good, and so I was thinking of some of you guys, and I was like, all right, clean, disease-free, financially stable, loves Jesus. I'm thinking, like, who should I text to be like, and none of you guys came to mind. I was like, no. No, just kidding. Just kidding. But seriously, no. Uh, so I was, and then my wife was like, hey, you should probably get out of the pantry. So I was like, all right. And so then I opened the door and I came out of the pantry and I closed it. And I'm fine, guys. I'm here. I did it. I know. I made it. I'm so glad. Uh, I tell that story for two reasons. One, because if you find my body lifeless on the basketball court tomorrow morning, you'll know, oh, the poison pantry. This is what did it right? And you'll be able to tell people and my loved ones and find a, a, a proper suitor for my wife to raise my children and uh, care for her well. Um, Josh will be in charge of that approval process. Josh, it's a big deal. Uh, and then the second, the second reason I tell that story uh, is because I think there was a level of um, the church that we're going to study, the last church in this series. We've been going through these seven churches in Revelation, Jesus having a prophetic word and vision for these seven churches. Tonight is the seventh church, and this is a church that is poisoned. They are poisoned, they are dying, uh, they, are, it is, they are in a toxic, toxic place. And Jesus steps into them because they have no idea. They just think everything is fine, they think they're great, they think they're brilliant, and the reality is this is a church that maybe more so than any of the other uh, six churches now that we've studied, this is a church that, that Jesus says, man, you guys are in major trouble. Uh, he's going to use this word that means vomiting. God is going to vomit you out of his mouth uh, because of what was happening in the church in Laodicea. And so that's where we're going. Um, I want to give you a little context about Laodicea. Throw up this map here, Jeffrey. <clears throat> so uh, these are the, you know, we've got seven locations on here that were all of the, these were actual geographical churches that, that John was getting this vision from Jesus for and prophesying these different words and we can see geographically kind of some history and some context. And so Laodicea was here in Asia Minor, and it was, uh, and it was this, this church that was, excuse me, it was this city that was incredibly wealthy. I mean, they were known for their wealth. They were this, you know, this hub of wealth. And there have been several churches in here that are doing okay financially. Laodicea was cream of the crop when it came to, to finances and when it came to their own self-reliance in their economy and their government. Uh, and so it was a very high-functioning city uh, in Laodicea. And here's, here's a few things, and you're going to be like, that seems kind of random. But, but historically, we know there are three big things they were known for. One was their wealth and their gold. Right? So remember that, man. They're known for their wealth and their gold because Jesus is going to bring that up. Also, they were known for their clothing. And specifically, in Laodicea, in that community, there were black sheep that they would raise and breed. And they had this glossy black wool that Laodicea was known for. And it was, it was coveted throughout the empire, and that was the place. And so this black wool was a famous thing for Laodicea that they were incredibly proud of, and it was a big part of their economy. And then also, no joke, Laodicea was known to have a medical school. And so they were known to have this medical school, and specifically famous for an eye salve, like a, a medicine that you put on your eye to improve your eyes and that kind of thing. And they were known throughout that. Uh, and so understanding the context of what was happening in the first century in this church is going to really help us understand why Jesus is calling them out, what he's saying, and then also how it applies uh, to us. 
uh, they also were a city that was incredibly self-reliant. I mentioned that. And one of the things that happened was in 8060, there was an earthquake, uh, just a, a devastating earthquake. And most of the other cities in, in the area that were affected by the earthquake, obviously they reached out to Rome for help because Rome was the superpower at the time. And so they reached out to Rome and Rome really came and gave assistance and um, they paid allegiance to Rome. And so Rome really helped them rebuild, not Laodicea. Laodicea, after this big earthquake in AD 60, they were able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They were wealthy enough and on top of enough that they didn't need to ask for help. They had everything they needed. They could take care of themselves. They fixed up, fixed up themselves. And so because of that, there was this attitude in the city of self-reliance that definitely trickled into the church uh, that's getting called out in Revelation chapter 3. Um, and so it's good. I mean, this, this is the end of chapter 3 and the the challenge uh, that Jesus is going to put before this church, and I would say he's going to put before you tonight, is good. It is sobering. It is convicting. Um, Through studying this the last week, I would say I have been incredibly convicted of where I line up with this and some of the apathy in my own heart that I see and see the warning and see the danger. and, and, And I think the scary thing is I don't even know if I fully see the extent of my own sin. And so it's brought me to a place, and I hope expectantly it brings you to a place too where tonight you say, Lord, would you show me? Would you show me those blind spots because I don't think I see them? Um, And I hope that you are praying and expecting God to do that tonight. So let's get into it. It's chapter 3, verse 14 is where we're starting. It'll be verse 14 through verse 22. I'll throw them up on the screen if uh, if that's easier for you. Here's what verse 14 says. This is how it starts. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Okay, so just right here, we've got this introduction. In each one of these addresses to the church, Jesus introduces himself. And here he introduces himself by saying, I love the way he says this. He says, the words of the amen, Jesus referring to himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Never, the word amen is used several times throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Never is the word amen used to describe somebody as a title. And here in the book of Revelation, Jesus uses it to say, I am the amen. And essentially what he's saying is he's, he's talking about his authority and his sovereignty. And that idea of the word amen means, uh, means kind of this so be it, right? This idea that so be it, this final, this final word. And so Jesus is saying, I am the so be it. I am the final word. I am the beginning from creation. I am the final word. And so he's setting the table to say, listen up, because I am authoritative, and what I'm about to tell you, you better listen to. So look at verse 15 and 16. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth which is a reference, uh, again, to um, this idea. That word literally means vomit. So what's happening is Jesus is illustrating for this church and saying, hey, you're not hot, you're not cold. I'd rather you be one or the other, but because you are neither, because you are lukewarm, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. He uses this illustration of lukewarm, uh, a common mistake that happens here, and this was something that I fell into for a really long time, is I interpreted this passage through the context of kind of our, um, our vernacular in the current day church. And so if you've ever heard people talk about like, man, that guy's so on fire for Christ, or they might refer to, man, I've just really gone cold 
right? And it's kind of this idea that like maybe their walk or spiritually or in a relationship, yeah, it's just kind of gotten cold. And so we use the vernacular now currently that hot means, yes, I'm on fire and I love Jesus, and cold means, no, I don't. Well, I want to propose that that's not actually what he's saying. That wasn't the context of how he was using the language in the book of Revelation. Laodicea was a city that, that, that was five miles south of a town uh, of a town called Heropolis. You won't know Heropolis, right? Great place. Um, right? Five miles south of Heropolis. And Heropolis was a town that was known for having hot springs. Right? They were known for their hot springs. Uh, it had medicinal purposes. It was a place to go. It was, it was a, a popular place because of their hot springs. And because of the hot water, they could do things that maybe other, other places couldn't. And so it was an advantage to them. Um, and then to the south, about 15 miles south of Laodicea, where, where this book was written, there's a town called Colossae, and Colossae was known to have cold water from, like, you know, mountain runoff, and, and it was kind of these snow-capped peak area, and so their water was really cold, which had all kinds of benefits and, and abilities with it, too. And, and Laodicea was built in a place that did not have good access to water. And so what they did was they built aquifer systems from the hot springs, and they got some from the cold springs. And what happened was Laodicea didn't have a water source that was useful. And they built a stone aquifer that dragged hot springs water into the city. But by the time it got through the stone aquifer and got into the city, it was worthless. And it was gross, and it wasn't, I mean, it could maybe keep you alive, but it wasn't good for anything. It wasn't good for anything. It wasn't the cold water that was refreshing and life-giving. It wasn't the warm water that was healing and relaxing and rejuvenating. It wasn't those things. And so the water source in Laodicea was useless because it was lukewarm. And so when, when I believe when Jesus is talking about hot or cold, he's not saying, hey, I'd rather you be cold. I'd rather you not be in love with me at all. I'd rather your heart be totally cold than, than at least be lukewarm. What he's saying is, no, it's useless, He's connecting it to their faith, and he's saying, no, your faith doesn't serve any purpose. You're not doing, your faith isn't real and accomplishing anything. It's just this lukewarm thing, and they would have read that with, oh, my goodness. This is like our water. And, and it ended up, historically, the, the lack of access to good water is why that city never really thrived or flourished, because they never had good access. And so eventually it died, and people moved to, to cities where they could get better access to water. That's what he's saying. He's making this, this comparison. He's saying, your faith is lukewarm. It's not good for anything. It's not hot. It's not cold. It's just this lukewarm thing that is, it, it's only worth vomiting out of my mouth, and it's disgusting. That's where he's going. Uh, and then look where, he, look where he, he starts to reveal their spiritual condition, and he shows where. So he uses this illustration connected to their water source, and then he shows man, where that's really coming from on a heart issue. Look at verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus is calling him out here in verse 17. He's illustrating, hey, you've got this lukewarm thing going on in your life. You've got this lukewarm thing in the church that, that's useless. You've got this faith that isn't hot, it isn't cold, it isn't serving a purpose, and then he reveals their heart. He says, man, you guys think you're rich. You think you've prospered. You think you need nothing. Not realizing. They don't see. He is the I am. He is the, the amen, the beginning, the end. He knows. He authoritatively is saying, you are wretched. You're blind. You're naked. You're poor. You think you have it all together. 
It's a major problem. Incredibly sobering conviction that he's laying before this church. They think they're great, but they are not great. And that self-awareness, that lack of self-awareness is such a dangerous thing. We see it here in this church. I think when it connects to us, I think us as believers, whenever we take this and we say, Lord, how do I apply this, right? This was a letter written to this church 2,000 years ago. What about me? I think whenever I see in Scripture being called out and the Lord reveals that to us and says, man, you're lacking self-awareness, I think it should, I think it should drop us to our knees and we should beg for more awareness. Lord, would you show me? Would you show me my sin? Would you, show, would you reveal to me? Lack of self-awareness. And so if you're, if you're here tonight or you go to church or you check the box or you go to renovate or you're plugged into stuff and you hear a sermon like this or any sermon and you find the posture of your heart being, yeah, this is great, but this doesn't really apply to me. Right? Like this is cool for somebody else and man, I sure hope my, you know, this other guy that maybe hadn't been around the church, but man, I've heard the Laodicea sermon and I've, you know, I, grew, I got scripture memory of it and I'm, I'm all over it. So this doesn't really apply to me. I don't think there is a more dangerous sentiment in approaching the word of God. I think if there's ever a posture of a heart that's like, yeah, this isn't really for me, then we need to stop and take hold of ourselves and our heart and our pride and our self-righteousness and our self-reliance and say, Lord, would you show me? How dangerous is it we might lack self-awareness in some major blind spots. And would we have the word of God and the Holy Spirit reveal to us, Lord, I think I'm here. I think there's some areas here that I need to, I need to change, I need to apply. Um, he offers this solution. Look what he says. I counsel you, in verse 18, he says, Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Verse 18, Jesus gives the alternative. He says, hey, you guys are blind. You're self-reliant. You you think you're rich. You think you've got it together. You you think you don't need anything. But here's what I'm offering you in verse 18. And And he references these three things. He references men by real gold. Buy gold from me, refined by fire, so that you might be really rich. Remember, this is one of the richest nations and churches in in this area at the time. He's saying, no, that gold isn't real. Buy real gold from me. White garments. Remember what they were known for was this black wool, white garments, which is always a reference to holiness, right? Whenever we see these white robes, white garments, righteousness. From me, not from yourself, but from me, Jesus is saying. Clothe the shame of your nakedness. You're walking around naked thinking you're fine, but you're embarrassing yourself in the eyes of Jesus. He's going to spit you out. Robe yourself, clothe yourself in white garments for me and stop trying to do it on your own. And then this salve, this anointment for your eyes so that you may see because you're blind. And they think they've got it all together and we think we've got it all together and we think we're doing great. And man, by the grace of God, We get to approach the throne and we get to stand confident in worship by the grace of God. But would we stop and say, Lord, would I be more mature? Would I mature to look more and more like you? Would I I mature to be someone who who grows in holiness and righteousness? Gold, white garment, 
and true medicine for your eyes to see. He is the real satisfaction. He is the true satisfaction. He's the one that provides and satisfies, not, not the material that we strive for. Man, those of you guys who have great jobs and have worked hard for those, and those who maybe don't have great jobs, but you're striving so hard to do that. Man, we are called to be good stewards. We're called to work hard. Our work should be worshiped to the Lord, but when it becomes an idol, when our job and our security and our paycheck, or at least the desire to get that, we think, well, then I'm going to be okay. So either you're there and you're like, man, my bank account's doing great, and, and all of a sudden we become reliant in that, and that's where we find our comfort. Or the desire to, well, if I could just get to that place, then, then I would have enough. Then I would be comforted. It's a dangerous trap that we fall into. Same thing with how we try to make ourselves righteous. How maybe we don't really see ourselves. The truth is he is better. Right? He is better. What he offers is going to be better than the, the things that we pursue. And, and then look at the peak of this conviction for them. Look at verse 19. He's really saying, man, it's not too late. I love verse 19. Verse 19, he says in chapter 3, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. There's so much good stuff in that verse. Conviction, maybe this lack of self-awareness that God's starting to reveal some sin and some idols and some places that, man, maybe our hearts are wicked. Maybe we're... But those who he loves, he reproves and disciplines. So be zealous and repent. Um, I, I think that idea of loving and love being something that is reproof and discipline. We've talked about it in here uh, a good amount. We did a whole sermon uh, at the beginning of this semester in January, February, talking about love being this balance between truth and grace. Uh, and, and I see that all the time. Um, and yet I think that's a really hard thing. I think that's easy for us to read verse 19 and be like, yeah, man, those who he loves, he disciplines. So like whenever things are going bad, it's like, well, I guess God loves me. But the reality is what Jesus does here, he doesn't sugarcoat it. He just straight up calls these people out. He comes in swinging and says, hey, you're going to get vomited out of my mouth. You are naked and poor and, and you're pitiful. And he's saying there in 19, and that's loving. Now, I have had um, a lot of conversations in the role that I have as a pastor where I get to have these conversations, probably on a weekly or biweekly basis at least, where um, I... I get to step into a relationship or, or walk with somebody in, in a little way and say, hey, man, I think there's a blind spot here. Uh, I think there's something here and uh, sometimes bigger deal than others, but I step into those conversations. And always that person, and let me say too, there are people who step into my life too because I'm just as unfinished and just as in need of grace and need of people to point out blind spots in my life. And so there will be men at, at different times in my life who have stepped in or, or honestly sisters in Christ or my wife who will step in and say, man, I see sin here. And we always have, we always have these two paths of how we're going to respond to that. When someone calls us out and they say, man, I, this is sin. This is, and whether or not they do it well or not, um, but when we're presented with this mirror and we're like, oh, man, I thought I was great, but I'm naked. Right? Like, I thought I was doing just fine, and I was kind of, you know, I was good, but really, this, this person's revealing, truth is revealing, Holy Spirit's maybe revealing something different, and that isn't near as fun to look at as the, as the image I had created of myself in my own mind. And so there's always this fork, and I always sit down and talk to the person at the end, and it's always, it's never a fun conversation, and say, hey, there's one of two ways. You're either going to hear this, 
and you're going to get super defensive. And you're going to leave here and you're going to think, man, what does he know? And well, he's a sinner and he's messed up too. And well, what about this person? He didn't even talk about this person, right? And it becomes this defensive thing to say, well, if that, I'm going to invalidate that mirror. I'm going, to, I'm going to push away. And we don't receive that as love. Or the second path is, gosh, I'm going to try to humble myself and try to receive that. And I know from experience that's really hard to do in my own life, right? I just want to invalidate that person and I want to, I want to buy into the image that I've made of myself, uh, my own mind, and kind of protect from some of those blind spots. It's so dangerous. Those who he loves, he disciplines, he reproves. Do we have loving relationships in our life? Do we run from those? When people start getting way too real, when people start being able to see our sin and see who we really are in some ways, and they start getting access to speak into that, I mean, I know that's uncomfortable. I know that's scary. Because we don't see it as love and we don't see it as something good. We see it as something that is going to be too hard. So let's just keep relationships shallow, keep people at a distance, continue to hide and mask, man. But Jesus says, man, it is not too late. Jesus loves us enough to hold up this mirror out of love, to discipline, to reveal, to reprove. And then look at the second half of that verse, what he, what he says there. He says, so those whom I love, I, re, I reprove and I discipline, so be zealous and repent. So here, that's Jesus' application. He says, man, here's the conviction. Here's the situation. So now go be zealous and repent. Repent, change Change your mind, turn from this, stop doing this, stop finding your identity and your satisfaction in these things that are not as good and turn from that. And, and he says, be zealous and turn from those things. Man, I love that he doesn't say zealously repent. He says, be zealous and repent as a, as a, separate, as a separate command for us. And man, I think for us as believers, I think it's so convicting and I get paid to do this. And yet I think so often, man, we make Jesus an accessory in our life, right? Like we make our relationship with Jesus like a part of the pie, in the pie graph of all that we do and all that makes up who we are and how we spend our energy and time. He's a part of that. He's an accessory. He's just a part of the label that we, that we identify with. And, and he's just an accessory. And I think... I think what Jesus is saying, he's saying, that is a posture worthy of being spit out of my mouth. Be zealous. Be radical. Be radical. The gospel of Jesus Christ, this radical story of God, the God of the universe, seeing broken, fallen, imperfect man struggle around in our own sin, he, he radically kicked in the doors of history, of creation, and, and brought forth his perfect son, to live a perfect life, who walked the earth 2,000 years ago and then died the death that you should have died, the death that I should have died, to take on the sin that I accumulate and you accumulate, and then rose again and conquered it and now sits at the right hand of God and says, those who put their faith in me, those are my kids. They are given righteousness. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing. It is a radical thing. And for those of us who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, how can we not live more radically? How can we turn Jesus, our only hope for eternity, into an accessory in our life? Well, I go to a Sunday and a Wednesday thing, and well, I'm in a home group, 
And he doesn't become this zealous thing of our life that radically influences everything. Influences the way we date, the way we see the opposite sex, the way we make money, the way we spend money, the way we function in traffic, what we read, what we watch, how we talk to people, how we see people. It changes everything in a radical way. Be zealous for him and repent. Turn from this useless faith that isn't really serving anything but yourself. There's a lost and dying world around us. Do we believe that? Do we believe Jesus is really their only hope? If we believed Jesus was their only hope, would our lives look different? Would we be more zealous? Should that reveal something? Should that be a mirror tonight that's like, man, maybe that reveals an apathy that isn't okay, that I can't be okay with? This gracious God, this gracious king, but maybe I'm taking his grace and I'm just turning it a license to live the life I want and just making this accessory, this get out of hell card. That's not the Christian life. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not do this so you don't go to hell. The gospel is die to yourself. The gospel is be dead, die to yourself, and be alive in Christ. Now, this life now, and then on through eternity. Man, um, so many other things I could say there. I, I want to move on to, um, well, I want to move on to some, some diagnostic questions. I thought these were interesting in my study, and so I want to read these out to you just to kind of continue to, to diagnose, okay, where are we at with this? Um, so in the, in the context of maybe self-sufficiency, I want you to just ask yourself this question. Just talk to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to hear this question, and I want you to help me answer this honestly. Do you hide your needs from your friends, your family, maybe other people in ministry out of embarrassment? Are there needs in your life, right, needs that you have that you say, man, I don't really want to bring those before friends and family and other believers just because that's kind of embarrassing? Because if you do, that reveals a little bit. That's a little bit of a mirror where the Lord is putting this eye medicine on you and saying, hey, maybe there's some self-reliance there. Maybe there's some you're trusting in your own ability to produce gold rather than trusting in, in me. When you struggle with temptation, sin, or addiction, do you try to conquer it alone, or do you seek help? And when you're caught in that sin, when you stumble into that sin, when you wander into sin, you say, ah, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna keep the doors closed on this one. I'm gonna fix it myself, and then whenever I get a handle on it, then I'm gonna come back out, or at least I'm just gonna hide that aspect of my sin. Self-reliance, that reveals self-reliance in us. Do you compare your spiritual life and growth to that of others rather than the perfect standard of Jesus Christ. And that reveals that our spiritual, we, we aren't really aware of our spiritual condition, right? We just say, man, we look at other people to evaluate ourselves and we say, well, man, I'm not doing, I mean, I'm doing way better than these people at work. Like, I love the Lord way more. I'm way more Christian than those people. That's not the standard that God has said to chase, and we use that as a crutch. And we, you will find people who are worse than you in life. And if you can't find somebody who's worse than you, then talk to me. Because you need Jesus, man. Um, do you allow small, this is good, do you allow small sin to linger because they aren't really harming anyone? Right? Well, this is just a small thing. I'm just going to, it's not that big of a deal. And we minimize our sin and, and kind of tell ourselves these lies that, 
When nobody is looking, do you say or do things that you wouldn't want others to see? Man, you think you're aware of your own spiritual condition, but you're blind to your sin. That's what this reveals. We think we're aware, but we're blind. Because if you answered yes to these, and I answer yes to these, and I find myself in these traps, and I, I think, man, when nobody is looking, am I, that level of integrity, does that exist? I want that. I want that level of integrity. But I think the fact that I, I, I try to, I'll try to, you know, pad the facts a little bit, or I'll try to make myself look as, as good as possible, and I'll, I'll worry more about the approval of man than of God. Man, are you satisfied with simply having faith without a changed lifestyle to go with it? Satisfied with just having faith without a changed lifestyle to go with it. There's a disconnect there. Brothers and sisters, friends in this room, I love you guys. I want us to see that. I want the Lord to reveal to us and there's something better. And as we try to hide and stay behind our own self-reliance, we're building for ourselves up this posture that Jesus says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Be zealous, repent. God's kingdom, not yours. God's gold, not yours. What are you doing with your money? What are you doing with your resources? What are you doing with your time? Man, there's, there's 59 other people that are taking time off of work and, and paying to go on a mission trip here in about five or six weeks to a foreign country because they're like, man, I'm going to go on this adventure. I'm going to see what God does. Um, but what are you doing with your time and your resources on a day-to-day basis? How are you spending them? How are you giving them? Who are you pouring into relationally? And Christ's righteousness, not your own. Christ's view and not your own. Even this idea of his view and our view. What kind of community are you in? Are you in community that knows you and you are known and you know their sin? That is so vulnerable. But the gospel should create relationships and community that way. Are you plugged into a, a home group or grab a couple of, of girls if you're a woman who know you and say, man, let's, let's go deep. Let's call me out. Reveal sin in me. Point those things out. And I, I will try to receive it as love. Even though it's hard to do, I'll try to receive it. And, and guys, grab someone else or get in a home group and say, man, let's be real with each other so that we might look more and more like Christ. And then this idea of Christ's righteousness, not our own, it's the gospel. I mean, I don't know where you're at in this room. You know, if, if you put your faith in Christ and you find yourself still striving and going back to this works mentality of I'm gonna clothe myself in righteousness with my good works as opposed to surrender, and maybe you're in this room and you just thought that's what Christianity was. You thought that's what Christianity is, is a bunch of people trying to do good to earn God. Man, I love that you're here. That's not what Christianity is. That's not what this Bible talks about as the gospel. Christianity is not a system of people trying to become more and more and more moral to earn God's favor. Christianity is, is a broken people recognizing I am broken and cannot do it, cannot be worthy of relationship with the holy and perfect God but I am laying down my life. I'm surrendering my faith. I'm putting my faith in Jesus Christ because I recognize who he was historically and I recognize who he is theologically, that he is God and he is my only hope and it is God's only path for me to be in relationship with him. He's saying, I can't do it him and then entering into this personal relationship, man. And there's so many Christian buzzwords in that sentence I just said. It's a life of surrender is what it is. It is a life saying, my life is not my own. And it is the best thing. It is where life abundantly happens. That's where it is. Rather than striving for religion or striving for worldliness, 
surrendered to the one who is worthy of our life. And walking in that. Man, talk to us. Don't, don't just hear those couple sentences. Talk to us and say, man, what does that look like? Man, walk me through that. That journey, that process. Man, I want to put my faith and then I want to continue to grow to look more and more like him. Love, love to walk you through that. Look at his love for you. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. That's a beautiful picture. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The love of our God in this passage, calling us out, saying, you're so self-reliant. You don't think you need him. You think you're fine in and of yourself and you're naked and you're blind and you're broken. Let me heal you. Let me be your righteousness, Jesus says. And then Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. He's talking about, he's standing outside of his own church, knocking to get into his own church. How embarrassing is that? A church with its door closed to Jesus, Jesus on the outside saying, hey, uh, I'm the point of this and I'm standing outside. And there is an invitation here given to, to everyone in this room to say, man, I put Jesus outside all the time in, because of my own self-reliance. And would we be zealous and repent from that and open the door and invite him in and say, Lord, more of you and less of me. That is my hope. That is my prayer. And that is something that doesn't happen in a sermon. That's something that happens in a lifestyle. Let me pray over you. Father, you're so good. Verse 22, you say... He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, in the name of Jesus, give us ears to hear. Give us ears to hear what your word says. Give us ears to hear the conviction that your Holy Spirit brings through the preaching of its word. That we might be able to identify, Lord, there are spots here. that We are places, there's areas of reliance, areas of our own self-righteousness, areas of where we find our satisfaction, God, you reveal those to us. We submit to you. And then give us the faith to turn from those things, to confess them to other people, to brag about our brokenness and let everyone know, man, look at these broken spots I have. God is good and better than them. We wouldn't just hide our sin and try to manage it ourselves. And we'd be zealous, Lord. We'd be passionate and radical. Because that's what your gospel calls for, Lord. God, um, you invite us. You invite us to come. Uh, you invite us to come and eat with you. You say you stand at the door and knock, and if we would answer it, you would come in and dine with us. So, Lord, would we do just that? In all of our lives, Father, would tonight we take some inventory and come to you and come to your altar and worship you and meet with you and dine with you we desire to look more like you, Father. Change us. Holy Spirit, change us. In the name of Jesus, amen.